Welcome to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. In this series, we introduce you to some recent and relevant books, our own books and obviously classic books that we just can't stop talking and teaching about. My name is Christophe van Houten, and in this episode of Bookaholics, I am joined by my brilliant colleague Carlos Alzani to talk about his latest book, Walter Benjamin and the Actuality of Critique, Essays on Violence and Experience, published by Cambridge Scholars. Hello, Carlo, and welcome. Hello, Christophe. Thanks for having me and for the opportunity to present my book. Well, it's my pleasure. Now, Carlo, as we are used here in Bookaholics, we always give the first word to the author. You wrote the book, so who better than you can tell us what it is about and above all, what you intended or hoped to achieve with it. So please, Carlo. Okay, uh, the book collects some of the texts uh, I've written on Walter Benjamin in the past 10 years or so. Uh, actually, the first text was originally published in 2008, so it makes almost 15 years. Um, the texts were written for different occasions, at different times and on different subjects. And I've, moreover, I've, I've reworked them all for this publication. But I've always approached Benjamin's work with a precise idea on how it should be read and why it is still relevant. So in this sense, the book has a consistency and an overall argument, which is, of course, the actuality of Benjamin's thought. The book is divided into two main parts and has two forty, which are violence and experience. The fact that I focused my readings on these two categories in Benjamin's work uh, is, of course, contingent and dependent on the occasions for which different texts were written. But it also reveals an important aspect of Benjamin's contemporary readings. Since these two categories, are, uh, that's my argument, emerge as peculiarly actual today and have generated a lot of interest and in scholarly work. Uh, the chapters of the book, however, do not intend to exhaust the analysis of these two categories in Benjamin's oeuvre and to give a complete picture of their role, of their scope, or, or of their actuality, uh, but rather approach them from different and particular angles, uh, exploring some aspects of two topics that would deserve each a big monograph. And there are, of course, already a number of important works devoted to these two subjects, or these two topics in Benjamin. <clears throat> For example, the chapters in the first part of the book explore uh, Benjamin's relationship with Sorel or Kant or capitalism on the question of violence. And the chapters in the second part analyze boredom, childhood and mechanization as a way to explore the transformation of human experience in modernity. But, but the unity and consistency of the book, as I said, is my reading of, of all these different features from the perspective and under the light of the actuality of Benjamin's critique. Mm, yeah, thank you. Now, remaining close to the first question of why, of the why of this book, the why, why you wrote it. You mentioned in the introduction that ever more voices are heard that the field of Benjamin studies is somewhat satiated. Some have even made reference to a sense of exhaustion in these studies. Now, although I wouldn't talk about exhaustion in the literal sense, it can be agreed that Benjamin is indeed referred to a lot. But more than a quantitative problem that should make one think about the qu 
this should make one, I'm sorry, more than a quantitative problem, this should make one think about the qualitative gift that Benjamin's work still offers. In fact, all of this should make one think about the actuality, like you already said, of Benjamin's work and about the specific nature of Benjamin's understanding of the meaning of the concept of actualität and the requirements of work, be it philosophy, literature or what else, for it to be and remain actual. You justly address these aspects multiple times in your essays. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about this Benjaminian understanding of actuality, of actualität? Um, yes, the, the so-called saturation of Benjamin studies is, is not a new phenomenon, actually. <clears throat> More than 20 years ago, uh, the late George Steiner coined the expression Benjamin industry precisely to name the literal explosion of a critical enterprise that began with the publication of Benjamin's collected works in the 1970s and 1980s in German and then took over Western academia with their translations in various languages in the 1980s and 1990s. The number of articles, essays and books published on Benjamin in the past 50 years is impressive. And this can produce what, what you call the, justly a, a sense of fatigue. That is the impression that everything has already been said and that what is and can be written today is just the endless repetition <clears throat> or a rechewing, uh, if you allow me this expression, of the same by now worn out formulas. Huh? But Benjamin, of course, uh, Benjamin's work is a mine of these elegant images of clever formulation that have been picked up by critics and, and even to a certain point by journalists and other cultural operators and reduced to more or less empty slogans. Think, for example, about the angel of history or, or the loss of the aura of the artwork and the technologically reproducible artwork or the di dialectic at a standstill and, and so on. So one thinks, what else can we say? Is there anything more, anything new to say? It is here that Benjamin's own notion of actualität uh, helps us to understand the meaning of the very act of reading and of reading Benjamin in particular. Actualität in German is a very difficult term to translate and moreover Benjamin uses it in a very peculiar and idiosyncratic way. The English term uh, actuality and its equivalents in many other Western languages is a false friend, though I use it of course in, in the title of the book. <laughs> uh, actualität in German can mean topicality or timeliness, that is the, the contemporary relevance of something. And in Benjamin's case, uh, Benjamin's case uh, the, the relevance of a, or a of a text or, or an historical event. But Benjamin uses it in relation to the notion of what he calls readability and recognizability and to the survival the, the terms he uses here for, for survival are Fortleben, Überleben and Nachleben. Mm. The survival of a work or the of the meaning of an event. So in short, a work or, or, or an historical event becomes readable and recognizable at a certain point in time and in a constellation, a construct between past and present. So, and the task of the critic or the historian is therefore that of recognizing its truth content 
in this constellation and to make it as present and actual. Mm. Here, here lies therefore the connection between actualität or actuality and critique that I uh, establish in the title of the book and then in the essay. Um, <clears throat> the task uh, of critique, and, and in German the term critique means both in English critique and criticism in the sense of literary criticism. Mm -hmm. the, the task of critique is to look for and unheard, unveil this truth content, and to do so, it must, it must mortify, as Benjamin writes, the work or, or the historical event. That is, it must interrupt and destroy its the sense of continuity, its linearity, the, the sense of wholeness and the impression of harmony. A work or the meaning of an event can survive in time, if the critic or the historians are able to unveil its truth content and give it a different form. And this applies, this is my, my whole argument, this apply, applies to Benjamin's work itself. His work is actual and keeps coming to legibility because or if huh, we are able to construct a constellation with it, with its time, which is of course very different from our time, mm -hmm. and with his its historicity. The historical and cultural lag that separates this time from ours plays a part in this after, uh, criticism. This distance, this historical lag and cultural lag is what allows to interrupt the apparent and superficial sense of continuity, of linearity, and even inevitability of history or culture or interpretation and so on. Many critical voices have emphasized the outdatedness of Benjamin, of Benjamin's work and of many of his concepts for our time, which is so different, even alien, huh, with, with respect to the first half of the 20th century. But my argument is that it is also this temporal and cultural lack that allows for a rupture, for, for, for a breaking up of this continuum, the continuum of history, the continuum of interpretation, and so on. And, and this way, his work can come, perhaps, to legibility, to readability. Um, that, that, that's my overall argument. Um, a, a final point. My readings and my emphasis on actualität, on actuality, are also explicitly set against a certain way of reading Benjamin that has been in fashion for many years, at least since the 1970s, in particular, but not only in American academia. And that's the explicit argument of the appendix to the book, which was originally written as a long review essay of a book by Samuel Weber, Benjamin's Abilities, from 2008. Many critics belonging to this American brand of deconstruction have read Benjamin as a sort of, of forerunner of Derrida and have moreover put the notion of virtuality at the center of his thought. Virtuality in the sense of the endless, ever unfinished and ultimately impossible process of interpretation. From my perspective, this way of, of reading Benjamin not only imposes 
onto his work an extraneous and anachronistic set of categories of so deconstruction, Derrida's deconstruction. Mm-hmm. It's even ultimately the very opposite of what Benjamin saw as the meaning and task of reading and of critique, which has, he emphasizes throughout his career, not only in one specific period or, or work. This ask, the task of reading and the task of critique must be centered on actuality, on actualität and not on virtuality. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and about the outdatedness, as, as we we are recording this with a war going on between Russia and Ukraine, it, it might not be so outdated anymore. So also there, the actualität, unfortunately, is, is rather uh, an, an accurate term. Yeah, anyway, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. Now, the first part of your book is dedicated to essays on Benjamin's critique of violence. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about this fundamental text of Benjamin and also how you approached it in your thinking? Um, the actuality of Benjamin's work today is importantly not exclusive. The critique of violence uh, is a short but very complex and difficult text published uh, in 1921 as a part of a never completed project on politics. Uh, politics is how Benjamin referred to this project in his correspondence. This text was uh, mostly ignored during, during Benjamin's lifetime and also during the first waves of Benjamin's receptions in the 1970s and 1980s. Its renewed legibility began with Derrida's 1989 long talk titled Force of Law, which acutely analyzes it, but also uh, strongly criticizes this text. And then this actuality bloomed when Agamben put it in, uh, at the center of his multi-volume project Omosaka from the mid-1990s. Today, this, this uh, short and difficult text is an uh, unavoidable focus uh, or in the political philosophical debate, uh, probably because it seems, among many other things, to unveil the truth content of our violent time, of our troubled time, mm. of a time with, which is characterized by an ominous entanglement of politics, religion, and violence, which are the topics of, of, this, of this text. Mm. And, and these features, by the way, were precisely what made it so difficult to read and so outdated just a few decades ago. And that's why was, this text was ignored for a long time. Mm. It was, it didn't came, it didn't come to legibility, mm. to recognizability for a long time. Uh, the, the striking actuality has, of course, its negative side. Uh, the problem of saturation and fatigue of what you talk about. Uh, is particularly true for this text, which has been so massively interpreted, dissected, analyzed, and debated that one can wonder what else could be said about it. And and 2021, by the way, was the 100th anniversary of the publication of this text, and yet a new translation and a critical edition with a massive critical apparatus was published by Stanford University uh, Press. So, uh, and the result of this massive overinterpretation are at times so contradictory and so conflicting that one can doubt about the meaning of the of the whole 
critical enterprise. What's mm. the point of reading it again? Mm. But th this text uh, cannot be easily dismissed. Huh? And if its legibility has emerged in particular today, this means that it can reveal us something fundamental about what true political action is and about its relation or non-relation with violence and religion or messianism. Messianism is the term that Benjamin, hmm. the category that Benjamin uses. Yeah. Uh, of course, the meaning of this true political action is difficult to extract from this very difficult text. And I, I use the, the term true, true political action because uh, a never written or lost part of this project, the, the project on politics that Benjamin talks about, was to be called the true politician. So okay. that's why I use true political action. But what this text aims at is essentially the identification of a form of action that interrupts the cycle of violence and retribution that characterizes politics, as we can unfortunately, see today, mm. and that Benjamin calls pure or divine violence. Mm. Uh, Agamben picked up precisely this point and interpreted it as a deposition of the whole uh, apparatus and categories of Western politics. So divine or pure violence as a deposition, not as a true violence. Mm. This is, of course, only one possible way of reading uh, the text and its ambiguities. Huh? Mm. I, I personally became interested, interested in this text precisely by reading Agamben's take on it, and perhaps also because of my inability huh, to probably understand this, this <laughs> obscure language, its obscure conceptuality, and this turn, turned this text into a challenge for me. Huh? Mm. But so I, I tried to approach it from, from different angles, for example, by comparing it to Georges Sorel's interpretation of violence, mm. or by analyzing its step to the Kantian system, or again by situating it into the larger project on politics, of which it is thought to be a part. I, I tried to make, it, to make it more understandable, at least partially for me, mm. uh, and my hope, of course, is that my chapters in this book can help others understand it a little better. Well, yeah, it definitely helped me. So at least one person. <laughs> cool. <laughs> anyway, the, the second part of your volume is dedicated to the Benjaminian concept of experience. Uh, here you treat the ever interesting topics of uh, boredom, for example, of play, as in children's play, child's play, and laughter. All three of these experiences, if I'm permitted to call them as such, operate in Benjamin in a very similar way and have a very similar function in his critique. Can you say something about them, how they operate and maybe also how they relate to Benjamin's concept of divine violence, as we just talked about, as they seem, at least according to me, to be structurally related to this idea as well? Um, okay, so if I understand your question correctly, you're asking in what sense these three concepts are related and whether a link could be established to the notion of divine violence that Benjamin develops and, and, and later drops in, in Critique of Violence and in other early texts. Yes. Okay, uh, for the first part of the question, boredom, childhood and laughter or, or children play or childhood are related insofar as they are but they all belong to Benjamin's sustained and essentially consistent critique of experience. Uh, 
by, by experience, I, I mean here yeah, the, the coordinates of human living in the world, mm. which at the beginning of the 20th century in Benjamin's time were shattered and thoroughly changed by a number uh, of factors. In, in the early 20th century, Benjamin's generation witnessed the destruction, this is a, this is a term Benjamin used, the destruction of the traditional coordinates of human experience and the impoverishment of it, mm. especially through technology, urbanization, the media, revolution, etc. Benjamin uh, was able to understand and describe this new poverty of experience. But unlike many other critics, and for, for such for example Adorno, just to name one close to Benjamin, mm. he did not unconditionally oppose this new poverty in the name of the Western humanist cultural heritage, huh? but, but try to find something positive in it, or at least a potentiality for critical intervention. Mm. And this is a constellation to which I think we can easily relate, huh? although our own poverty of experience is so different and would have been in unimaginable in Benjamin's time, what, what mm. our experience, our virtualized experience is. Mm. But I, I think it's also so uncannily similar exactly. that we can easily adapt uh, his analysis to our new and, and ever-changing conditions. Yeah. So boredom for Benjamin is a mark and a malady uh, of modern experience. It's almost an epidemic in, in the age of the virtualized experience, or ask anyone with children. <laughs> but at the same time, boredom also presents the potentiality to interrupt and break the illusion of this modern and contemporary capitalist dream of wholeness on, on, on completeness. Childhood, on the other hand, uh, presents for Benjamin the paradigm of a fuller and untarnished experience, which in, in the ch chapter on, on childhood I called prelapsarian because it seems to precede the fall into mm. ad adulthood, into modernity or even into capitalism. Mm. However, at the same time, childhood is also a paradigm for change, for adaptation and a non-innocent, so non-prelapsarian approach that could be able to refound experience anew. Mm. And laughter in the chapter on, on Mickey Mouse as well works for Benjamin as a sort of interruption that dismantles the illusion and phantasmagoria of bourgeois society, of bourgeois seriousness. Mm. So perhaps in this sense, this three concept could be linked to Benjamin's early notion of divine violence, huh? which Benjamin sees precisely as an interruption of the vicious cycle of violence and retribution. Mm. All these concepts, including divine violence, work as a rupture that opens up the possibility of something new. And mm. They seem, as you say correctly, uh, seems to be seem to be structurally related. Mm. I, I never thought really uh, about about this connection. I never made the, the link between all these categories, but. It, it is certainly an interesting point. So thank you, Christopher. <laughs> it's it's the structuralism, the structuralist in me that always comes yeah. back. <laughs> now, one thing that came to me while I was reading your essays is that time and again, uh, Benjamin takes us along a path of reversal of concepts. So maybe I should say uh, an unveiling, but 
maybe they are both option. Or, or both these operations are combined in him. But anyway, Benjamin seems to be taking us in a certain direction. But then there is always that moment of, can I call it uncertainty? There's, in, in the meaning that there's this moment of doubt, a doubt that he might be completely wrong. At times, this doubt might be auto-inducted, but at other times, it was caused by critique of others, like the, by the already numerous critiques by Adorno, who you already mentioned. Now, it, it seems that he was always aware, first of all, of the extreme difficulty of the address topics that he was looking for. But secondly, he was also always aware of the dangers of his own projects, that they could become uh, or even derail into the exact opposite of the liberating revolution that he aimed for. Although one can obviously see this in a purely negative perspective, but I was actually pleased to find this hesitance in, as, as I read through your texts. Now, it showed the maturity, I think, of his thought and the awareness that thinking is never without danger. Anyway, am I correct in this reading of mine? And could you maybe elaborate these embryonic thoughts, uh, thoughts of mine, please? Uh, yes, I, I think you're quite you're quite right. Uh, from from early on, Benjamin tended to emphasize the methodological advantage of working with extreme concepts. That is, of pushing the analysis of a category, a category or, or of an event to its extreme possibilities, in order to try and unveil positive or, or revolutionary potentialities. This is a methodological feature that brings him near to the method of Carl Schmitt, uh, as he explicitly acknowledges in a letter he sent to the German right-wing jurist in, in the early 1930s. Mm. And that uh, Agamben also developed in his own notion of paradigm, uh, working, pushing a, a notion to the, an extreme and, and therefore paradigmatic mm. uh, uh, position. This is, of course, always a, a thin line to walk, because, as you say, there, there's always exist the possibility of pushing a concept too far yeah. and of ending up on the wrong side of, of the barricade. <laughs> and, and I believe Benjamin was very aware of this danger. And this accounts for the impression of doubt and hesitancy that you so acutely identify. This is very clear, of course, for the question of violence, which, in fact, generated no later criticism and opposition for from or, or pure violence, divine violence, mm -hmm. this concept. It, it generated a lot of opposition and criticism from many more liberal quarters, beginning with Habermas in the 1970s and there, also Derrida in the 1980s. Mm. So the, what Benjamin calls pure or divine violence is really an interruption of the cycle of violence and retribution. And, and if it is so, why call it violence and not adopting the terminology of non-violence and why call it pure why recur to a, a religious vocabulary all this messianism considering the ominous links between religion and violence was Benjamin, that's another big point was Benjamin too close methodologically if not politically to Carl Schmitt and other dangerous representatives of the German conservative revolution, as many critics have correctly, I think, argued. So Benjamin's work is not free from ambiguities, and not only from what you call doubts and hesitations. So but the task of the critic today is precisely that of mortifying his work mm. and trying to unveil its truth content. Mm. 
so another example is for, on, on, from the, the topic of experience is the notion of a new barbarism that Benjamin attempts to counterpose the poverty of modern experience. This poverty, uh, Benjamin argued, cannot be opposed by a nostalgic return to pre-modern forms of experience. This must be embraced to try and extract something positive and even revolutionary from, from it. But the risk always exists, of course, to embrace, to embrace the wrong form of barbarism. And we must remember that in the 1930s, when Benjamin was developing these concepts, this wrong form of barbarism was the fascist and Nazi destruction of the European traditional values and cultural coordinates. Mm. This is a point that always worried Adorno, for example, with regard, with regard to Benjamin's extremism. Mm -hmm. And I think the same holds today. Should we embrace these new technologies, the, the new conditions of labor, the uberization, the new cultural coordinates of our hyper-technologized, hyper-mediatized, uh, and hyper-virtualized experience, yeah. at the risk of ending up with the wrong, which is essentially right-wing barbarism, and the definitive loss of the achievements of the past two centuries? Mm. This, this is a, a big question. Mm. Although Benjamin fiercely opposed the right-wing destruction of the experience, the fascist and Nazi destruction of the European cultural heritage, mm -hmm. he was aware, I believe, of the risk of pushing his own analysis too far and too close to the wrong side. And so, I think, should we. Yeah. Well, thanks for this, uh, Carlo, and, and thanks also for being with us. Uh, I realize, obviously, that there is still so much to say and we have hardly exhausted our words dedicated to Bar Benjamin. Um, I'm still happy to say because he's still not exhausted. The industry it might be an industrious thing, but it's still not in, to the point of exhaustion. Now, for all those who want to have a closer look at Carlos' book, it is called Walter Benjamin and the Actuality of Critique, Essays on Violence and Experience, published by Cambridge College. I sincerely recommend it, especially the third chapter, and, because, wow, that, that was truly a bomb uh, for me. So anyway, thank you, Carlo, for being with us. Thank you a lot for, for, for having me. Pleasure. Uh, thanks also to our listeners for having joined us once again here at PICT Voices. And you, dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work here at PICT, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join PICT, please visit our website. And if you wish to contribute to this series dedicated to books, maybe by proposing a recent book or even simply by recording your own episode of Bookaholics, please do get in touch with us. My name is Christoph van Houten. Thank you and goodbye.